I don't remember when I first heard God called she, but I remember being very confused as the scripture lesson went and all the pronouns were she for God, I kept having trouble following the reading. Now, who was that? Oh, that was she. Oh, that was God. It sounded very strange to my ears. It felt a little dangerous, as if I was committing an offense punishable by the Bible police. Was it wrong to call God she? I know that some of you may be feeling confused. God she? It may sound strange or feel dangerous. It may even make you a little angry. You may want to call the Bible police. I also know that some here may hear God she and receive the words as living water that drench a parched and aching soul. Water that rises up and lifts us to new and eternal life. Jesus' conversation with the Samaritan woman was dangerous. Jesus just had to go to Samaria, where the people intensely dislike the Jewish people. And Jesus just had to start this conversation with a woman. The disciples were very confused and astonished and angry. Jesus had already been in trouble with the Bible police, breaking the laws, pushing the boundaries. And right here, right now, he is breaking laws about race, religion, and gender. And Jesus doesn't just cross the line with this woman from Samaria. The two of them together obliterate the lines of separation. So here are two people who never should have met. And yet Jesus had to go to Samaria. And he is tired and thirsty. And the woman is tired and thirsty. And these two vulnerable people are face to face. Jesus does practically demand that she interact with him. She knows he shouldn't be talking to her, but Jesus will connect. And somehow he knows her pain because she has been abused. For that's what it means to have had five husbands passed from man to man and with a man who will not take her as his wife. Jesus sees her as she is and treats her with dignity and respect, not as an abused, despised Samaritan, a woman, an ignorant unbeliever. And she opens up, okay, prophet, where should we worship God, on your mountain or on mine? 
and Jesus treats her as a student of theology. It's not about where, it's about who and how. Spirit and truth. Spirit is God and truth is the love that breaks through boundaries and diminishes all, it breaks through all that diminishes, discriminates, and separates people. And now she has the living water. And she carries it in joy and hope and pours it out on her community and the Jews and the Samaritans for that moment come together and share a few days as friends. Jesus refuses to accept the cultural and religious norms of his day. He stands against the discrimination of women and the bigotry of racism, the exclusion of religion. Women are an integral part of Jesus' ministry. They fund his ministry. Mary Magdalene is the one who goes to the tomb when no one else does. She is the prophet to the disciples. I have seen the risen Lord. And women are vital to the ministry of the early church, serving as preachers and leaders. The Apostle Paul will write to those earliest Christians, there is no longer Greek or Jew, no longer slave or free, no longer male and female, for you are all one in Jesus Christ. But through the centuries, we lost some of Jesus' wisdom. And all too soon, Julia, Junia, Mary, Persis, Tryphon, Tryphosa, Phoebe, and Prisca, all women in ministry in the first century were told not to speak. The fathers of the early church during this patristic time said things about women. Origen describes women as less than animals. Thomas Aquinas followed Augustine's view that women are defective and misbegotten males. Lest we think the reformers were any better, John Calvin said women are simply inferior to the male sex. Our Christian tradition has a deep streak of misogyny running through it, which I don't think is a surprise. But do we ever connect this with the discrimination of women that exists in our culture? That our faith has contributed to the sexism in our life? How can women be seen as equal if God is always depicted as masculine? Women will always be just a little less. And we think things have changed, but the Me Too movement has taught us women are still abused 
the discrimination and violence against women and girls has not gone away. There are 853 hymns in our hymnal. How many do you think are devoted primarily to feminine language about God? How many? Four. What are we Christians to say? In this Lenten season, I believe we have some repenting to do. We need to confess that, yes, the Christian tradition has too often perpetuated the discrimination of women. We need to say that we reject the words of Origen and Augustine and John Calvin, that they were wrong about women, and that our faith has deeply wounded women for centuries. But repenting is not a, just about acknowledging our sin. It is also about changing our ways. I believe that we need to watch our language. The words we use for God matter, for they not only express what we believe, they shape what we believe. So if we speak only of God as Father, Son, King, He, His, Him, our image of God will remain masculine and all that is feminine will be just a little, not God. If we speak of God as woman in labor, midwife, nursing mother, she, hers, her, our image of God becomes richer and fuller and larger, and we shape a spirituality that upholds the equality of women and men. We have the power by our own speech of how we talk about God to shape the culture around us. Our words really do matter. Despite the church's attempts through the centuries to squeeze God into a few images, God has always absolutely refused. In scripture, God will not be contained. God is a rock giving birth in Deuteronomy. God is a mother bear protecting her cubs. God is a woman in labor crying out in Isaiah 66. God is a midwife. Says Psalm 22, verse 9, you took me from the womb. You birthed me and kept me safe upon my mother's breast. Again, Isaiah 66, as a mother comforts her child, so I will comfort you, says our God. And the church fathers, 
there were some who got it. Clement of Alexandria of the second century, the word that is Christ is everything to the little ones, both father and mother. And in the fourth century, John of Christotum, thou art my father, thou art my mother, thou my brother, thou art friend, thou art servant, thou art housekeeper, thou art the all, and the all is in thee, thou art being, and there is nothing that is except thou. Mystics such as Hildegard of Bingen, who was the composer of our introit music. Go back and read the words. She says, it is easier to gaze into the sun than into the face of the mystery of God. Such is its beauty and its radiance. So Anselm of Canterbury and the 11th century prays, Christ, my mother, you gather your chicks under your wings, for by your gentleness the frightened are comforted. By your sweet smell, the despairing are revived. Your warmth gives life to the dead. Julian of Norwich, a medieval English mystic, describes God as both father and mother. God rejoices that he is our father, and God rejoices to be our mother. Scripture alone gives us hundreds and hundreds of images for God. Lauren Winner, in her book, Clothed in God, Wearing God, she writes of images of God as beekeeper, as wild dog, as that rock giving birth, and so many more. Why has God given us so many images? Because... God is that all in all. So we can call God shepherd and we can call God king. We can call God pillar of fire and wild dog and solid rock and woman in labor and mother and wife and wife, wife nursing mother comforting her child. And we can say Jesus is bread and wine and water. And we can be brave, faithfully brave, and say, God, she. Amen.